Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Fred and Lou Hartwig family, Peter and Barbara Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees. And by viewers like you. Thank you. And welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought fight over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Ruckettes join me shortly in our topics this week. It's a no from Pompeo, possible yes at KCI, and no one seems to know at the Jackson County Jail. Plus, of course, roast and toast. But we begin with our newsmaker segment and talk about the upcoming centennial celebration of Negro League Baseball, which had its origins in Kansas City and lives on at the Negro League's Baseball Museum at 18th and Vine. Joining me for that discussion now is NLBM President Bob Kendrick. Bob, good to see you. Welcome back to Ruckus. Thanks for joining us. It is great to be back. Thanks so much for having me. 100 years next year. Yeah. Talk about some of the activities that will take place during the centennial celebration. It's a tremendous milestone. And for us at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, we believe one of the most significant occurrences in the annals of American history is the founding of the Negro Leagues, and as you mentioned, right here in Kansas City in 1920. And so we announced on the 99th anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues, February 13th of this year, that we would take the lead in a major national celebration, which will begin for us on February 13th, 2020, 100 years from the day that Rube Foster stood at the Purcell YMCA to create the Negro National League, and we'll open up a beautiful, brand new exhibition of amazing works of art by an artist named Greg Crandler. And these are extraordinary works of art. And we'll have some new artifacts that'll be accompanying that. And then we'll start a litany of programs and events, not only here in Kansas City, but around the country. But it'll culminate here on November 14, 2020, with a major 100th anniversary gala in conjunction with what would have been Buck O'Neill's 109th birthday. You know, it'll be a celebration of baseball, but it really is more than a celebration of just oh, baseball. Oh, you're absolutely right. This is American history. This is a celebration of civil rights. Mm -hmm. This is a celebration of diversity and inclusion. All of this wrapped up inside this story of baseball. You know, these amazingly courageous and talented athletes who just wanted to play ball. They had no idea they were making history. They didn't care about making history. They just wanted to play. I want to ask you about uh, 18th and Vine. Uh, the museum has been open for, what, about 20 years? Yeah, we're in our 29th season, and, and of course, we moved into our new yeah. home, current home in November of 1997, so 22nd year in that, that uh, location. Uh, you have been successful. The museum has been successful in an area where there have been few successes. Why do you suppose that is? You know, it, it didn't hurt to have a power hitter like the late, great Buck O'Neill, no. you know, in the fold, leading this charge for us. And I just think that what he prepared us to do uh, was to go out. I use a, a, a baseball analogy that he shared with me when he said, Satchel Page said, Nancy, called him Nancy, said, Nancy, we're going to have, the homeless going to cook fish and grits in the morning, <laughs> but the catch is we got to catch the fish. And, and so he created that mindset, if, if we don't catch it, we don't eat. And I think that is what has driven us to have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit to try and be as creative as we possibly can in terms of the programs and the events and things that we do to try and get people into the fold. And then it's baseball. We're a major league city. And it's still baseball, even though this was taking place in an area that a lot of people had turned their backs on many, many years ago, 
Buck had the foresight for us to build it there. But, but Kansas, City is, it Kansas City is one of the homes of jazz. Yeah. You would think jazz, a jazz museum, would be more successful than it has been. Well, you know, and I, I still hold great hopes that the Jazz Museum will restore its luster and, and, and be right there with both of us operating at a optimal level. That is good for everybody. It's good for the city. It's good for 18th and Vine. So no one's a bigger cheerleader for the AJM than, than I am. And if the and museums do museum. well, business flourishes in that same Absolutely. area. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's talk in the Kansas City Star. They're running editorials and some columns about, in the future, a baseball stadium downtown. Does that sound appealing to you? Well, let me preface this by saying I love Kauffman Stadium. I think it's one of the best places in Major League Baseball to go watch a game. But from a self-serving standpoint, <laughs> a downtown ballpark would be great for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It would be great in many respects for the urban core as we're creating new job opportunities that people will ha would have access to, a far greater access to those opportunities. And, and we've seen the success of what happens when you build a ballpark or a stadium down downtown is that the infrastructure in and around it certainly grows. The commercial aspect of things seem to grow right along with it. So, yeah, you know, sentimentally, I love the K, but a downtown ballpark is certainly something I think I could get behind. Yeah, what would be the impact at 18th and Vine if there were a baseball stadium downtown? It would be tremendous, would it not? Well, I think so. I think so. It puts people in closer proximity. Yeah. We do well now in terms of baseball fans who are coming in to see the Royals play and still make their way to the museum. But I just got to believe that the closer proximity will give us an even greater opportunity to get more people to come and experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and thus doing so, experience 18th and Vine. Going back to the centennial that's upcoming, yeah. bobbleheads? <laughs> Tell us about the bobbleheads. We, in December of last year, through one of our partners, a licensee called Dreams Fulfilled, we announced this incredible project of creating the centennial bobblehead team. 30-plus bobbleheads that will be introduced. Satchel Page was the first to be introduced, and who other than Satchel would be the right yeah. person to lead off this collectible, I think going to be an amazing collection of collectibles. And so these bobbleheads are going to be released throughout the rest of this year up until February 13th, and, and with a portion of those proceeds benefiting the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. They had a $10,000 goal. For will there be one of you? We, we haven't determined that yet. <laughs> okay. Hey, we're out of time. It's great to see you as always. Thanks very much for coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. Anytime. All right. Thank you. That is Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Now let's meet the panel and start a ruckus. John Stevens is president and CEO of Port KC. Attorney Laura McConwell is a former three-term mayor of Mission, Kansas. Teresa Garza is a former Jackson County legislator. And attorney Steve Marakian is with the law firm of Worsh, Hobbs & Marakian. Steve has just been named senior policy advisor to Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Congratulations, Steve. I didn't so, wear my green tie this morning. I should have. So let's begin by asking what is by now a familiar question. Is KCI a done deal or a deal yet to be done? Since voters approved a new one-terminal airport in November 2017, there has been consistent controversy in print, on the air, and in public over what the final plan would be, who pays, how much, and how soon. There is apparent hope that the final pieces of the deal with Edgemore infrastructure 
will come together this week and most confusion will end. However, Council veteran Teresa Lohr, no fan of the plan from the outset, told the Star the city was supposed to have an airport deal two years ago for less than $1 billion. It just goes on and on with the lies. The lies we've been told. So again, the question is, is KCI a done deal or a deal yet to be done? And I'll ask John. Well, I, I think it's as close as we've been yet, and I would say it's very close to being a done deal. And I think as, as important as that, the process, while messy, has ultimately been pretty transparent because it's been played out with the city council and in the news for months. And we are close to getting to the point of taking the uh, construction project out of the hands of politicians and putting it in the hands of, of the contractors and the experts that can build it. As we're taping this program, it's Thursday morning. Yeah. The city council is meeting later in the day. Yes. We may know more by the time this program airs. but. Uh, what is expected to happen today? So what's expected to happen today is advancement of the development agreement. So as of yesterday afternoon, uh, the majority of the airlines, 95% by volume, have signed on to the funding agreement. Uh, that, we believe, will allow the city council to advance the development agreement process. Um, I, it's anticipated to pass this afternoon. Uh, and if that goes, then we will be ready to start moving towards issuing bonds. And then there is still the issue of the initial gap funding to start demolition immediately. But generally- Where, where does that money come from? Is it going to be sitting That's gonna be the big some? question, and that's why that piece has yeah. been delayed. Uh, Teresa Lohr is not the only member of the city council, I think, Laura, who has uh, voiced some objections to the way this is being done. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of ugly when you watch how sausage is made, but I do think it is concerning about the, that initial $90 million and what was promised to the taxpayers and what it looks like it's going to happen. Um, I was a little bit concerned about some of the council commenting that they wanted to do what was in the best interest of the council because I think what you try to do is what's in the best interest of, of the community. <laughs> and and just having something signed on paper doesn't mean that it's, it, it's done. And I think that's concerning, and I think the cost the cost increases are are concerning, and I think we need to pay attention. And and I is that a big fact, deal? The, the price increase at one point five billion instead of one. Well, billion. I think that's the big question: is how are they going to actually? How is this going to be paid for until the bond revenue kicks in? And I'm like, and they haven't really worked out all that financial pieces. I mean, there's all these ideas out there, um, including the the newest one with Scott Wagner's equity, adding equity into mm -hmm. it, but none of it's actually been worked out. Right. And so that creates a big yeah. problem, especially when you're talking about doing what is best for the, the, the public versus the council. Well, Steve, long before KCI gets built, there will be a new city council and a new mayor in Kansas City. Is it possible they might want to make changes to what's going on? Yeah, it certainly is possible, but I think you're, you're, you're all missing the larger point, and that is it's not the new city council or whatever. It's going to be the new government because within two years, we'll be on a path to no airplanes, no automobiles, <laughs> and no jet fuel. So why are we paying a, million, a billion and a half for this? Because we're not going to need any of it. AOC, you're my gal. She's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and you're the advisor. I am. You're the advisor. Well, well, we're on the path to all walking everywhere. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I do want to say, I the think, I, yeah, I think the 90 million, which is this, this contingent interim funding right. of how it's going to work, that a few weeks ago, I actually had a lot of concerns about it because it really was. There was no funding agreement. The airlines hadn't signed on. There was no development agreement. 
once if the development agreement gets signed then there is a lot of recourse to then issuing that to move this forward if not we're really waiting and and the cost increases have been important but really there we've gone from 35 to 39 gates we've done a lot of other things cost increase and what the airlines wanted and needed for the future has been planned in so it may be close to a done deal i think it's very close to All a right. done deal Here's a deal that is not done. It is starting to look like Jackson County legislators don't think Sheriff Daryl Forte's Forte is sharing information. Legislators want to know Forte's plans for dealing with the myriad of problems at the county jail. And Forte, who has been in charge of the jail only a short time, seems to be saying, give me some time and space. Last November, voters approved putting the jail under the sheriff's jurisdiction and elected Forte Sheriff. But legislators also control the money for the facility and surely need some access to information. It does seem fair to say that both sides have valid points of view. So from your perspective as a former legislator, how do you see this being resolved, Teresa? Well, that's a great question. And I think that there are some um, things to look at. I mean, obviously, Forte's only been there for two months. Um, you've also got three new legislators out of the nine. One who is also absent for 12 years is now, and now rolling back on. I think that sometimes just getting something passed for the sake of passing something isn't necessarily good government. And I think taking time, setting forth a strategy, saying let's have something definite by like six months from now, giving timelines and deadlines, I think, is um, really kind of how it should be approached. Now, whether it's done that way or not is a whole other story, but there definitely has to be those lines of communications, and I think by putting forward certain timelines on when stuff needs to come forward is kind of a good way to approach it. Um, I think, again, he's, he's still trying to gather all the data. You can read what you read in the papers. You can get information secondhand from the people that have been there, but at the end of the day, you still need to do your own research, yeah. and mm -hmm. I think that's what he's doing. And Steve, it's not like the jail is a new problem. <laughs> Correct. You know, I, the, the, the big problem that I see is that the question of, of what the jail is and how it should be, uh, whether we should have a new jail or should be financed, in my view, should never be in the hands of the sheriff. Uh, and it's not, it's not sheriff, you know, it's not Mr. Forte. Forte. Okay. It's, it's this jail, Jackson County Jail, is, is a true embarrassment not just to this city, but I mean, it, 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 is, it, is, it is one of the most abysmal places you can ever imagine. They're going to have to build a new jail. You can't fix mm -hmm. that jail. I mean, the, the plumbing problems alone are just monumental. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The idea that human beings mm -hmm. have to sit in that jail, um, you know, is, is just, it's just, it truly is a constitutional violation. It's a human it, rights it's, issue. It's horrible. Yeah. And, and nothing is being done. And again, I don't blame the current sheriff. All I'm saying is, you know, this give me time nonsense, we've all known this jail has got to be rebuilt. It's, they've got to build a new jail similar to the one out in Johnson County, something like that, where at least you have a humane place for people to be when we put them in jail. Well, and I, well, I, something's well, got to be done. Well, I'm tired, of, I'm tired of the political have, football. You still have just, to have a, a plan in place. You still have to figure out what that yeah, new yeah. jail is going to look right, like. Right. That takes a little bit of time. But how many years have we been waiting for this new plan? But he, again, well, I don't blame him. You've got new people. I agree. But it, it, just, it just goes back. No matter who the new person is, it's always the same thing. We need more time. The legislature kicks it over. He kicks it back. We argue about who has the finance.
financing, and nothing well, gets done. Well, no, I, I, I are completely suffering. agree with Teresa. I think you need to, they need to get down, set set it down, and and come up with some come up with a timeline. Okay, by this date, I'm going we're going to yes. tell you what our recommendation is. By this date, then they can do RFPs and they can True. move on. Right. So that both parties are part of the process. What's, uh, yeah, the process and what's going to happen because that process is important because the legislators control the funding uh, the money. Yeah. The sheriff should be in the best position to say, okay, here are the things that we need not only for the inmates but also for the people. And for, for me to do for my the, job. And there, must be public, there must be public accountability too. Yes. When you set those deadlines, that you're held accountable to those deadlines. Correct, correct. That's one of the problems yep. that is occurring. Right. The lack of transparency and public mm -hmm. trust in this whole process yep. when it comes to the jail. Well, and that yeah. has to be reiterated across the board. Right. Don't legislators have other things to worry about in addition to the jail in Jackson County like the Jackson County Courthouse downtown that has its Certainly. own own problems and uh, the question of <laughs> tax equity? They, they they certainly do. They have a lot of tax equity issues. They have a lot of revenue issues. Uh, and, and like most older counties, older cities, they have an immense amount of deferred maintenance and infrastructure issues. But they need to prioritize that. And you cannot uh, put inmates uh, in a jail as a lesser class and say, well, they can, they'll just have to wait this out while we fix the offices or while we fix these other things. Right. You have to prioritize Correct. people and make sure that you're held accountable. But All again, right. within two years, AOC is going to tear it down. It's <laughs> got to be rebuilt. So come on. Let's get uh, where we know where you're going here. All right. Kansas Republicans thought they hit gold when it seemed possible that former congressman, CIA director, and now Secretary of State Mike Pompeo could be the party's candidate for the U.S. Senate in 2020. There will be no incumbent because the current senator, Pat Roberts, will retire at term's end. But Pompeo, a West Point and Harvard Law grad, seems to like diplomacy. Before heading off to Hanoi, Vietnam for President Trump's meeting with Chairman Kim, Pompeo told NBC's Today Show he's happy where he is, will stay as long as the president wants, and therefore will not be running for the U.S. Senate. So, does Pompeo's decision mean the Republicans are out of choices and out of luck in Kansas? And we'll start with Steve Morakian. Well, of course not. And, and I want to tell you, I, I, you asked me last time what I announced. And, and so... He's I, announcing his I, candidacy. Today, <laughs> I, I, I would think that I am now the presumptive nominee oh. and the slogan, oh, Morakian against all others. <laughs> Uh, and so today we have it. So what's the worry here? We have we, we don't have to look for other candidates now. Very but never the, but seriously, in, in the unlikely event you're not the in nominee. The, the very engaging events, and inclusive, Mike. Then, then I think there is a serious problem. Uh, not serious. There are some good people out there. You know, Collier may want to run. He's a very popular guy. Quite frankly, people, I think a lot of Republicans have remorse that he didn't get the nominee for the mm -hmm. governorship. Um, you know, um, uh, Susan uh, Waggle is, is good. Is it Waggle? Waggle, Wiggle. whatever. But Wiggle. she's good. Wiggle. She's smart. Uh, but the Democrats have an excellent opportunity to, t to take this seat unless, and this goes back to, to, my, to my protege, AOC, if the Democrats in Kansas follow suit with the idea of some crazy leftist they're going to lose this opportunity because they have a great chance right now. Uh, I left out Kevin Yoder. He's a possibility as well if he wants to do it. Very popular, even though he didn't win. Very, very middle-of-the-road kind of guy. But they better nominate. The Republicans have to pick somebody good, not someone who is just far, far, far to the right or out of touch with things. And the Democrats can easily, in my view, this is their election to lose. Uh, Laura, you know the Republican landscape in Kansas. How does this look to you? Well, I, I agree with 
Steve, that um, the Republicans cannot uh, elect or select a scorched earth candidate. Mm -hmm. And we have several examples of those types of scorched earth candidates. And they would be? Well, one's Chris Kobach. And so in because it'll be more of an open field, it appears if, if Mike doesn't doesn't run, there are going to be a lot of them, so a lot of people in it. So there aren't going to be that many votes required to become the nominee as, you know, like 50. I mean, you're, you're going to have a plurality as opposed to a majority. And, you know, so I hope the voters are smart. But I do also agree with the Democrats. They have been, if you look at this last election, a lot of the Democrats were really organized and they, um, while some of the candidates that were elected are probably a little more to the left, there were some, like the governor, who isn't. And, I, you know, I think they could be a formidable candidate. Well, John, I wonder, why do Republicans think that Pompeo would be a slam dunk? I mean, he's just in Hanoi, where the talks yeah. with Chairman Kim have not been successful. Uh, why, why do we believe he would be inevitable? I, th I think, well, I don't know about inevitable, but I would say that I, I do think that, that a lot of Republicans in Kansas look to him as the prohibitive favorite, and I think rightfully so, because of he, is, he has quickly built name recognition, grown name recognition. He has carried himself with a lot of, a, a lot of respect and a lot of accountability within an administration, and I think generally most people look at as dysfunctional and a mess, and he's really somewhat been a stable piece of, of right. an administration that is viewed as a mess, and, and I think so rightfully so. A lot of Kansas uh, voters look at him as, as uh, being responsible. Well, as yeah. being calm. But an adult if, in the room. Right. Well, because if you <laughs> right. look at him, he was the, uh, I think it was the Sedgwick Party Republican chair, and then he ran for the seat when, when T. Art decided to mm -hmm. uh, run for senator, and then he just kept... Um, you know, and then he, he became and got in the Trump administration, and he keeps his head down. He does his job. He's not out saying a lot of irresponsible things. So, yeah. it, so it, it, if you're going to win in Kansas, while Johnson County is very, very important, Wichita is important and kind of the big one. And so, I think the reason why they like him is yeah. because he. Speaking has those. of not saying irresponsible things, Michael Cohen <laughs> testified yesterday <laughs> before a U.S. House committee. I know some of you uh, were paying attention. Any thoughts about that before we move on? You know, we were kind of talking a little bit about that before we started taping, and we were talking about the fact that we found it interesting that in pretty much every hearing that's come before Congress, whether um, regardless of what party's overseeing it, they kind of villainize the person that's giving the public the public testimony. And I find that interesting because these are our elected representatives and they should be um, more cognizant of that when when this is happening. And it's not just, like I said, in this particular case, it's everyone that's ever okay, come in. Well, and Merakin yes, is now absolutely. senior advisor to yeah. Michael oh, Cohen. Right. To Michael well. Cohen. <laughs> so. oh, he was a graduate of the Cohen School of Law. Oh, down to less than a minute. Um, uh. As an attorney, are you proud of the profession after yesterday? Oh, you know, absolutely not. I think Michael Cohen is a reason not to go to law school. And, I mean, he's just made a travesting a farce of the whole profession. And he, if you could, like, be triple disbarred, he, he needs to be. Yeah, I, I, I would say because just, just, but also to be clear on his testimony, just because he is really seems, comes across as a pretty terrible person, doesn't mean that everything he said is untrue. Well, right. Same as true, Steve. Although, although Steve may come across as a terrible person, I believe. The, the, the most important thing about Cohen's testimony, which is completely overlooked by most of the news media, is that that he showed us, if you believe him, there was no, no collusion. collusion. Yeah. But what he really showed us was that Trump's in good company. 
He's in company of Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, and Bill Clinton as being somebody who really, really is a philanderer. Okay, we've got to move on. <laughs> now we're going to head to the soapbox for roast and toast where the Rookheads have 30 seconds each to obsess, redress, or address. And we start with Laura. Well, I'm, I, I'm resting Michael Cohen. I think Michael Cohen is showing that all things that are sort of wrong with the legal profession. Um, that's all I can, I mean, I, 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 that's all I got. Steve. I'm roasting the Mad Hatters of Hate, Spike Lee and Jossie Smollett. If I hear one more race hustler try to justify black racism by saying the country needs a conversation about race, my head's going to explode. We've been having a conversation about race since 1964. America of 2019 is not America of 1950. If Donald Trump is a racist, he's the most incompetent racist in history. So here's the conversation. I say, I voted for Trump. I'm for a wall. Jossie Smollett is a liar and a hoaxer. Your response, you're a racist. Shut up. Good talk. Thanks uh, for your comments. Uh, John. Sure. I would like to give a toast to the Casey Rising uh, organization, the Collective Civic Organization, because they, they took on some honest... Uh, challenges that Kansas City faces recently. Uh, I think rightfully the civic community in Kansas City has be, been accused of being Pollyanna-ish and maybe only highlighting where we rank in the top three or the top five for many, many years. And But many concerns remain and many challenges lie ahead, including gross regional product lagged our peers by 6.8%, median household income is 2.3% behind our peer cities, and quality wages are 2.9% lower than our peer cities. It's time to acknowledge that and work towards fixing that and moving into the, the uh, national and global city that we should be. Ms. Garza? Yes, so I want to roast the city of Raytown's government with some ma uh, major issues regarding transparency and, and public trust. Um, and they have a police chief that abruptly um, resigned under allegations of financial mismanagement and um, cronyism. They have a city clerk who was found guilty in violation of public um, records requests and laws, sunshine laws. And the city is apparently getting ready to go undergo an audit by the Missouri State Auditor. So my ask of you is to, if you live in Raytown, be sure to vote in the upcoming April election. <laughs> All right, and finally, here's a mild rose to a local news anchor who managed to mispronounce two prominent names in the same brief story. Anchor read, President Trump is saying Japanese Prime Minister Abe is nominating him for a Nobel Peace Prize. Prime Minister is Abe in the prize, while quite noble is the Nobel Peace Prize. Reminds me of my early days in radio when I once said, and this summer, be sure to visit Yosemite National Park. <laughs> and that's Ruckus for this week. We're off for a couple of weeks, then back on March the 21st at 7. Now for the Ruckus and the crew, Mike Shannon saying thanks very much for watching and good night. <laughs>